Almighty God, as we come to this letter of Paul to the Colossians again, we pray that you would help us to see that Christ is all we need. He is all we need to live the Christian life, and he is all we need to battle in the Christian life. So Lord, help our eyes to be fixed upon Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, about three, four years now, we in our house in Korean. It was our house in Korean, but we noticed a problem in the kitchen. The first sign was these little beetles that seemed to be coming from one of the corners of the kitchen. On closer inspection, when you look at the the kind of the board that goes underneath the cupboards we noticed there were all these little holes starting to appear. You probably guess what it is. It's called woodwork. And there were a couple of options that we could have done. We could have ignored it. We could have put the lino back and kind of just never looked at it again. Or we could get on with what we needed to do which was rip out all the cupboards and start again. We could have swept up the dead insects, sprayed a bit of chemicals in the holes. But really, to ignore the problem or trying to control it would never deal with it. It would just keep coming back again and again and again. So what we did was sell the house. <laughs> Simplest thing ever, and move. But Christianly speaking, when we need to deal with sin, we can't just brush over it. We can't just say, oh, it's a wee small problem. We've got to do something drastic. And those people who moved into our house, what they would have needed to do was rip that whole kitchen out and build it again. As I say, like our houses are infested with woodworm. Our lives are infested with sin. And part of Colossians we're looking at tonight, the Apostle Paul says, there's only one thing to do with sin in your life. We've got to mortify it. We've got to kill it. So with Colossians uh, chapter 3 open in front of you, I want you to look at uh, verse 5, where Paul says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. But like with me and the woodworm, there are a couple of things we're tempted to do with sin. One thing is we close our eyes to it. We don't think too much about it. Instead, we think, rather than being reactive to the problem, what we think is, if we try harder and we push further, we'll get beyond the sin. So we'll go to Bible studies, we'll go to church more, we'll go to the programs, we'll read books when we're busy with those things, we overlook our sin, our irritability, or our prayerlessness, or whatever other sins hang around. So I wonder if I asked, I'm not going to do it though, don't panic. If I asked what sins, what sins you had in your life that God has been pointing out recently, what would you say? Would you say, I don't have many? If you're saying that, maybe you're ignoring your sin. Maybe you're brushing it over. The other thing we try to do with our sin is keep it under control. One way to do that is making strict rules and disciplines. We, so you might 
have a rule that whenever you're angry, you count to ten before you open your mouth. When somebody told me when I'm angry, never write a letter when you're angry. You know, maybe write it, put it in a drawer, look at it again the next morning and see whether it's worth sending. You might do stuff like that. Or maybe if you're addicted to looking at things that you shouldn't be, maybe you say, I'm not going to watch TV after half past ten or whatever it might be. Now those strategies can be useful. But if they're what you rely upon for spiritual growth, then you're going to get nowhere. Because if you look in chapter 2, verse 23, we'll see where Paul thought about us trying harder or following strict rules. Uh, He he says this, he says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So relying on rules and disciplines will never get rid of your sin. The best you'll do is shut up anger or lust or whatever it is in a cage until one day you're going to blow. It will happen. The problem with both ignoring and trying to control sin is that it's neither a strategy is based, neither strategy is based on the gospel. Killing sin is the only approach that grasps what God has already done about sin in Jesus. And that's why verse 5 says, put to death therefore. Because therefore looks backward to the reason for killing sin, which is why we read verses 1 to 4. Let's look at them again. It says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is what is true of you if you are in Christ. You're united to him by faith. You died, that is you died to sin because Jesus in his death paid its penalty and broke its power. So sinning sinning isn't inevitable anymore. It doesn't rule over you. Then you've been raised with Christ. You're part of the new creation that Jesus began with his resurrection. And when he returns, he will get rid of the remaining presence of sin in you forever, and you'll be fully and finally like him. But until then, the new you, the you that is hidden with Christ in God, lives down here on earth with your earthly nature. Okay? Your earthly nature refers to the old sinful you. The you that died with Christ. And that's tied to this present world. And thank God, won't survive into the next one. That is why we can boldly face up to our sin, rather than ignore it. And that's why we have the power to kill our sin, not just try to control it. And can I just say, this is a side issue. It is futile to try and kill sin in your life until God has forgiven and freed you on the basis of Jesus' death. You will never be able to control sin unless you are a Christian. As Jerry Bridges has said, the only sin that can be successfully fought against is a forgiven sin. So if you're aware of sin, but you're not yet a Christian, this passage shouts to you, 
Will you turn your life over to the Lord Jesus? Will you repent and put your trust in him? But if you are a Christian, you may be thinking, okay, I, I need to kill my sin, but how do I kill it? How do I get about it? Well, last Sunday, uh, 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 I'm not a, a green-fingered person, but it's coming up to spring. I don't do much around the garden at the rectory, but I do toy around with the one in Port Rush. And, I, and it was an amazing advert. What you did, and this is where I go techie, a little bit techie nerdy, what you did was, if you saw a garden pass, what you could do is take your phone out, take a picture of it, send it to these people, and they would send it back to you telling you what you needed to kill it and how to sort it out. Brilliant. Don't have to think about it. Don't have to read any books. Just picture, click, and send. Sort it. Now, we might want something like that for our problems of our sin. You take a picture of what you're struggling with, and you send it off to glory, and you get a message back with a remedy, but we don't actually need that. Because whatever sin you need to send, the message back would be the same. It would say, kill sin with the gospel. Kill sin with the gospel. So, so my second heading, if we put sin to death, the second heading is put sin to death with the gospel. Paul shows us three steps that that involves. First, you need to see your sin for what it really is. Look at verse 5, chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil deeds, greed, which is idolatry. When you flick through the pages of any magazine, or newspaper. It seems to me that every other advert or article sends a message about sexual immorality. This week, through the week, we had a man married for 27 years. Says, I have these feelings now. I've been hiding them. And what the world says is, bravo, you are so brief. <laughs> How lost they are. How lost they are. And if it's not shouting about that, what it's trying to say to you is you need this thing. You need to buy this thing. And you need to buy that stuff. So we accumulate so much junk. And that lifestyle seen as normal. And if our friends and our colleagues think the same way, it's easy for us to get caught up in that, to think that sin is not all that bad. But we need to see sin for what it is. For example, you know, going along with people that say that, 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 that actually sexual, sexual intimacy is not within that context of man and woman covenant and marriage for life. You know? To, to, to see that root, that lust isn't a bad thing. To see that flirting with, 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 you know, with people, you know, going over the edge is, is a bad thing. Seeing people and, and saying, yes, that's an attractive person, but then having these thoughts in your head, processing it all like that is a bad thing. We need to see our sin for the evil and the uncleanness it is. 
We used to have these little things when we were teenagers. Growing up, you'd put on your arm, WWJD. What would, what would Jesus do? And I think it's a great thing to have on your hands or even before your eyes. That to think of everything we do and we, we say and we, we touch, that if Jesus were there, where we do it. Then there's greed, which can refer to the unrestrained sexual appetite, or more widely, just really wanting more stuff. And greed must be one of the overlooked sins. We also talk, we all, we're always quick to go to sexual sins and everything else, but we rarely think of greed. We must have the, the latest gadgets, or the bigger house, or the, the new dress. But if the thing that you want gets more of your time, thoughts, energy, or money than Jesus, or the thought of it, getting it makes you happier than Jesus, well then it's an idol. A false god you've set up in your life to serve, to set up in your life to serve instead of the one true God. And it's not just things like lust and greed we need to call out by their proper names. Look down at verse 8 for another list. It says, but now you must get rid of rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another. You know, in soaps we see this all the time, but actually the truth is we do them. And we do them even in church. We think they're excusable. I get angry when I think I'm, when I'm tired or I think I've been wronged. And if you're like me, sometimes you make excuses when you're angry. I've been up too long. The kids were giving me a hard time or, or they just pushed me over the edge. But our anger is hardly ever righteous. If Jesus were to return at that moment and saw me and the other lists spring from anger. It do, if it doesn't simmer away as resentment and bitterness, it builds up as rage, angry words, raised voices, slammed doors, malice wants to harm someone in some way. And slander is one way to do that, painting someone in a bad light by our words. Filthy language and lies or other ways anger often comes out. Too often we excuse our anger and its fruits as normal or inevitable. Paul says, get rid of them. They have no place in the life of the Christian. And there's one thing we need to see about our sin. Verse 6. Because of these, because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. God's wrath is his holy anger, his settled, true anger against sin and the judgment that results. And it's coming. It's coming already as God gives people over to the consequences of their sins, as we read in Romans which include broken relationships, increasingly blatant evil, and the hearts hardened to God and the gospel. And God's judgment is coming finally when Jesus returns and sends those who've rejected him for a way for, for, forever in hell. And God's wrath is coming because of sins like yours and mine. Now let me tell you, you need to know that's not a threat if you're in Jesus. The reason God's wrath is no longer a threat and the reason we need to take it seriously is Jesus' death. Because the place, the place where, where God's wrath is most clearly seen is the cross. At the cross we see Jesus going through living hell for us. Separated as Father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then dying. 
What he suffered there was our sin so that we could be forgiven. That's how seriously God takes sin and how much he hates it. So folks, we need to, to see our sin as we look at the cross as absolutely disgusting. We need to call out sin for what it is. And the second step in killing sin is to see yourself for who you really are. We've already mentioned this. We already talked about this last week. But this is a drum that Paul keeps on playing. And we should too. We we can never hear it enough. So look at verse 7. He says, You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived. In other words, the lost line, anger and the rest were the bread and butter of pre-Christian life. And if you were converted as an adult... Maybe your life was full of the same things. But for all of us, before we trust Jesus, sin is as comfortable and well-worn as a favorite pair of jeans. We, we slip it on all the time. But then as we become a Christian, it means that those old clothes have to go. Look at verse 8. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. And why? We'll look down halfway through verse 9. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices... And I've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, yesterday, uh, in between um, preaching, uh, I told, the, I told the, 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 the people at the weekend, you can speak to me at any time this weekend, but the hours between two and four are mine. Because I wanted to watch the Ireland, Wales, probably much. And I did. I found the lounge. And Castlewell and Castle sat down with a couple of people and it was great. Nobody spoke to me. Brilliant. Even better than being at home. But what if halfway through the game, one of, one of the Welsh team was getting a bit upset that his side was going down. And he thought, I'm sick of playing for Wales. And they took off their red jumper and they found a green jumper and they put it on. And they swap sides. What happens? What about happen? Well, you could say the player had taken off wheels and put on Ireland. Can you? They've taken off wheels and they put on Ireland. And with taking off that red shirt, he'd have to, in principle, take a, a load of practices off with it. He wouldn't be listening to his old coach anymore. He'd need to listen to his new coach. Our transfer player would suddenly start going against his old teammates, taking the rugby ball and charging towards the, the Welsh try line. Now that could be a bit disorientating. But what would keep him going the right way is looking down and seeing that he no longer had a red shirt but that he had a green shirt with a shamrock right on his chest. And then remembering, I'm not playing for the old team anymore. I'm playing for the new. And becoming a Christian is a bit like that. Verse 9 says, you've taken off the old self. You've taken off the red jumper. Literally, that's the old man. We've stripped off the old, the sinful humanity. 
And when we took off that shirt, in principle, we took off all the sinful practices that went with it. And at the same time, as verse 10 says, we put on literally the new man. We've taken off the green, we put on, or taken off the red, we put on the green. We pulled on Jesus Christ. And we're united to him. And as we wear his shirt, we're being renewed to be more and more like him. Conformed to be like him. And that's why in verse 12, Paul, and next week we're going to be hearing this more, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with the character traits of Christ. So when you're disorientated by temptation, learn back to go into the drawer and getting out that red jumper again, just remember, that was the old thing. You're not playing for them anymore. You're playing for the new. You're in Christ. It's not your team anymore. You took that off, and you pulled on a new one. You put on Christ, and God is making you like him. Now, did you notice verse 10? What Paul says there. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's a big part of being renewed, is learning to think with you out of the center and Jesus in the center. That's really important. Because as a Christian, Jesus has to come first in Every single thing you do, whether that's driving the car, being a husband or wife, being a parent, uh, being a good worker, being a a good member of of a church family, Jesus has to come first in all that you do. That brings us to the third step in killing sin, which is to see Christ is all that matters. Look down at verse 11. Here, that is, in team Christ, the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, if I were to ask you, can you tell me the difference between a barbarian and a Scythian, you'd go, most likely, those kind of Distinctions don't mean a lot for us today. But if I can tell you at Colossae, they would have been massive. The Greeks would have thought the Jews as being thick. They didn't have the Greek philosophy and all the learning of the Greeks. So the Jews were thought of as stupid. The Jews thought the Greeks were irreligious. How could these people who should know the one true God be worshipping all these different gods? They're idolaters. And both of them would look down on the barbarian, who they thought, frankly, was barbaric. And the Scythian was really the worst sort of barbarian. The slaves and free certainly would mix in public. So this kind of group pride must have been uh, at least some of the anger, some of the resentment, some of the lies, some of the slander that was going on in the church. These divisions were a sin and the Colossian Christians needed to put to death. And so do we. 
Because it's not just in Colossae that people are like that. You can know you're affected when the main thing you register about another Christian isn't that Christ lives in them, but in how different they are from you. So, for example, some new people come into church and they come in and they've got earrings and, you know, break alcohol or something like that and they come in and they sit in or, or, or these people are, call themselves Christians uh, and they come in and they're wearing uh, shorts or whatever it might be and, and we how dare they? How dare they? Don't they know this is Donna Cloney? Aren't they aware this is what we have standards? But if our first link with them is not Christ, we are sinning. You know, think about it like this. We could easily make distinctions in age, gender, income, nationality, education, clothes, or anything. And Paul says in the church, those divisions mean nothing. There is no rich or poor. There are no British or Irish. There is no Nigerian or Belfast man. There is no student or local. There is no doctor or cleaner. There is no unqualified or PhD student. There is no cool or boring. And the reason, look at verse 11 again, Christ is all and is in all, that is Christ is all that matters. And Christ is an all who call themselves Christians. So the way to kill that sin of pride and division is to see Christ in all. We need to see that. And we need to see, as in chapter chapter 1, verse 16, that all things were created by him and for him. So the purpose of the universe and the purpose of your life and mine is to show how good and great and glorious is Christ. And when we see that, we'll accept each other, despite our differences, despite our culture barriers, despite our, our, our value systems. We'll accept each other despite our differences and work together around the world to tell uh, the world about him. That's why I love our church's links, is links to Kenya and to Thailand and even to Dublin. Brilliant. Brilliant. And that means seeing, as in chapter 2, verse 10, you've been given fullness in Christ. United to Jesus, you have everything you need. As we've said, the way in is the way on. Total acceptance with God, a total secure future with him, so there's no need for fear and security when faced with other people. And because he lives just the same in all of his people, there's no room for pride either, that we know more than others. And that's how to kill the sin of division in the church. See that Christ is all that matters. And as we finish, I want us to show it's the same for other sins that we need to put to death. So take lust as an example. Why do we find ourselves seeking sex outside marriage, whether in the mind or in the screen or in real life? Because deep down we think it will make us happy. Or greed. Why do you want that new pair of shoes or bigger salary 
or to have the latest technology or a new bit of the house, again, deep deep down, we think it will make us happy. Or take anger. Why do we get angry? Because someone or something has frustrated my desire to be respected or to feel in control of my life, and whatever it is we think will make us happy. Whatever we think will make us happy, whatever we most desire becomes our life. We're back to idolatry. 200 years ago, a Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Let me repeat that. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What he meant by that was the only thing that will drive out the idols from our hearts is having a greater affection, a greater love for the Lord Jesus. As we saw in the Song of Songs, and we saw in chapter uh, chapter 5 and 6, when uh, the woman was running around looking for her husband and couldn't find her. Uh, and she asked her friends, could you help me find them? And they said, what's so special about your man? And then she said, oh, my man is amazing. He's the best thing since sliced bread. Now, they didn't use that word in the Song of Songs, all right? But you get the picture. And then all of a sudden, all the friends said, let's go find them. They went from total apathy to total desire. They wanted to find them too. And why? Because this woman had sung wax lyrical about the bridegroom. And if our hearts are full of the Lord Jesus, if we are stirred up by our love for Christ, we'll be able to put the knife to the root of lust, greed, and anger. Because we need to see, as verse 4 says, have a little look at it. Chapter 3, verse 4. Christ is your life. Your happiness as a Christian is only and fully in him whose love for you led him to die, to reconcile you to God, and to get you to glory. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, how are you getting on fighting against the sin? Are you ignoring it? Are you doing it what sometimes we do when people call around very, very quickly? You lifting up the carpet and kind of going, down, get it later? Are you trying to beat it in your own strength? You won't do it. God calls you to put it to death and the only way to kill sin is with the gospel. So see your sin for what it truly is. See yourself for who you truly are and see that Christ is all that matters. Fill your hearts with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love, Jesus' kingdom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And thank you that in Christ, we also have the power and the reason to put sin to death. So please help us to do that. And Lord, when we falter, help us to fall back upon your gospel and to turn to you in repentance and faith and to keep fighting on because Christ is our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.